The question today, will Black Lives Matter on November 3rd? Let's take it back four years ago, where the Black voter turnout declined for the first time in 20 years, falling to 59.6%. And we all know what happened. Most currently, though, the Black Lives Matter movement with the death of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and George Floyd, and countless others, um, things have changed. And we, we got to figure out how it's going to impact us now in this election. So tonight on Black Men Speak, we're going to discuss the BLM movement and will it matter on election day? So I'm your host, Keith Dent. Um, Black, um, Black Men Speak is a show that empowers uh, Black men to just show up because we are showing up. We are doing what we need to do in our communities. And tonight, we really got some uh, heavyweights on tonight in the political arena. Um, and then when I first started this show, they, they were the first two people that I thought of because I was like, wait, um, you know, I know we vote and we, but a lot of, uh, I mean, I don't know what the percentage is, but a lot of us don't really know who we're voting for, why we're voting for them, what are the issues, what do they stand up for? And so when things don't go our way, we get mad as opposed to, hey, this is, you know, this is their record. That's what they have done for years and we didn't do anything about it. So tonight we're going to have Mo O'Kelly and Mark Thompson on to, with us. So Mo O'Kelly is a radio television commentator for the Mo O'Kelly show. It's a 10 time nominated program uh, out of LA. And I'm sure if you have been paying attention to what's been going on the past couple of weeks, you've heard his name because uh, he uh, had a nice little little bit of a run-in with Roger Stone, and we may, we'll touch upon that a little bit. Uh, and then this other brother who is, um, who's really done a fantastic job. You know, I've known him for a long time. We were alums of Georgetown in the same class, and he's been on um, Sirius XM. He currently has his own uh, podcast called Make It Plain. Uh, that's our Reverend Mac Marks Thompson. Mark, yeah, Mark Thompson, but Maximilla Mampufo, you know, we know that. Some people know that name as well. So we're going to bring them up, and we're just going to go ahead and uh, start talking about it. So, Mo, Mark, what's going on? Good to see you, brother. Oh, and by the way, I'm a Georgetown alum, too. I want my Georgetown love as yeah. well. It's not I just mean, yes, Mark of course. Currently a Georgetown <laughs> alum. And I, I'm just not me, in your let, class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, and one thing that's fantastic, I know, People say, well, wait, is another more another Georgetown alum on the show? Well, we, we have a lot of Georgetown alums that are just doing great work. And hey, we might as well go ahead and just showcase showcase what they're doing. So um, welcome to the show today. How are you, you guys doing well? So we have the left coast, we got the left coast with Mo, and we got the east coast uh, with Mark, and you know, could be a few could be um, it could be the World Series preview right here. So, you know, hey, might as well chop Yankees it up. Ain't, Yankees ain't going to make it, so I don't know about y'all, but <laughs> the Dodgers know, will be know, there. As long as Judge <laughs> we'll home there. runs. Do we really want to go there? Yeah, we'll, no. we'll, save that. we'll save that for the World Series. How about that? Fair enough. 
So before we kind of get into the, you know, the political uh, stuff that I really wanted to talk about today, I really let's uh, would love to hear about how you guys got into politics. Uh, what made you decide that you really wanted to to get into the game, or what what was the journey that led you to to what you're doing now? Mark, Mo, you can you can go first. Well, um, there are two stories. There's how I was inspired by politics, and that goes back to 1984, the Democratic National Convention, and and watching Jesse Jackson's involvement, and then being. I would say, um, educated by my parents historically about Shirley Chisholm and, and how African-Americans have played within the presidential process specifically. That inspired me to learn more, to, to get more knowledge and a better understanding of not only our government from a civic standpoint, but specifically the role of African-Americans that we've played along the way. L had to go back and learn about the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and how that played into the moment of Jesse Jackson in 1984 and 88. As far as professionally, I was writing, I think I did an, an editorial for the Los Angeles Times uh, when I was about 26 years old, I was lucky enough, and I say stupid enough, to get in on my first try because then I thought it was going to be easy like that ever after that, and it wasn't. But it gave me an opportunity and some insight to see how a person's voice can have a tremendous impact if it's focused and also that I do my homework to make sure that I'm in, I would say, uh, correct as far as how I present the issue and, and also that I can also offer a, a viewpoint which is less heard by people who are not. African-American in nature. That's the short story as far as how I began my journey. And then professionally, I was working with people like Tabitha Smiley, and I uh, worked with a number of people within the Los Angeles community along the way. But it's it's a long journey, and this is just the latest step in it. Okay. Well, That's fantastic. As, as far as I'm concerned, a very similar trajectory. I was motivated by Jesse Jackson's first presidential campaign to get involved in politics outwardly. Um, and I was also uh, one of the lead correspondents for my uh, high school newspaper. So I covered his campaign for the newspaper, began to work in his campaign at that time. And I was only what, 17, uh, 18 years old. And it stuck. I mean, I've been involved in politics ever since. Uh, 25 years in Washington, D.C. Um, we had the most recent black political party to have had electoral ballot status in the country uh, in Washington, D.C. for several years. Um, and then always used, you know, radio as a tool to mobilize. Um, I was kind of raised in radio by not kind of, I was. I was raised in radio by uh, Kathy Hughes and was there for 19 years um, and um, with some overlap also in, in satellite radio and, and doing a political show on satellite radio um, for uh, a number of years, uh, for at least 13 years, I think. Um, so this is um, my 32nd year in radio even though I am um, much younger than both of you. Uh, I've been doing this uh, for 32 years and covering politics. So, um, and then, you know, um, in that role, having been involved in a lot of the movements and demonstrations 
uh, over the years. Um, and um, so, yeah, it, it's just kind of, and, you know, we were political when we were on campus uh, at Georgetown as well. Um, and um, got a little bit of trouble for that. I remember freshman year when we shut down the university to get it to divest from apartheid South Africa. Mm -hmm. um, so that's just kind of always been something that's been, politics has always been something that's just been in my blood. Mm. Yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's definitely apparent just by how you guys conduct yourselves um, on, on your shows that you've been very well involved, very knowledgeable, and it's been great to see. So uh, along that line, just you know, being um, African-American and, and kind of in the, especially the news landscape where it's most predominantly white, right. what have been some of the challenges that you guys have faced uh, you know, kind of covering uh, the political landscape. Well, I can say for me, being on KFI AM640, which is a top news talk station here in Los Angeles, it only has a 3% African-American listenership. So there is the obstacle of just being seen as a host who happens to be African-American, as opposed to being cast as some sort of token who is only be there because he is an African-American. And that kind of goes back into the whole Roger Stone thing. It's a difficult journey if only because, unfortunately, America looks at everything through the prism, when we say something, through the prism as if we're is, there is a racialized agenda or we're trying to say something on behalf of black folks. There are those moments where I will speak specifically as an African-American man, but more times than not, I'm speaking as a professional who happens to come from an African-American perspective. And one of the biggest difficulties and obstacles is to be seen within the light of being the professional. You heard Reverend Mark Thompson's um, resume, 32 years. But most people I believe in this business, talking about the majority white business, will discount that in a heartbeat oh, yeah. and look at him as something less than that. I can't speak for him, but I, have an, I can imagine right. that his story is similar to mine. That is, for me is the most difficult part. In other words, can we talk about these issues from a standpoint which is not purely about African-Americans, can we talk about the president and not be seen as I'm here talking about black issues? That's the thing that's difficult for me. I can't speak for Mark. Well, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, there is a minimalization because we are black. Um, I was on um, with Kathy Hughes on a black radio station for 19 years. And then Make It Plain was the very first talk show to sign on satellite radio, period. And during much of that time, I became a crossover artist in terms of, uh, for years, um, I Make It Plain was the only daily national talk show hosted by an African-American that was not on a black talk station. Now, that's a double-edged sword. It speaks to how we are losing our black talk stations. And that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. Um, but as I was on progressive and my audience was um, primarily white, I mean, they were white progressives, white liberals. He shouldn't be on here, he's black. Um, and I had to do some work to let people know that as black folk, we are born liberal and progressive at a minimum. <laughs> Most of us are born revolutionary. 
And so, you know, after time, um, I was able to uh, win that audience over. But uh, you're right. Oftentimes we're taken for granted, not taken seriously, just like um, if you're a writer or an author, for example, at, a, at an HBCU, you're treated differently if you are a black professor who's authoring at a white university. You know, so um, there are always ways to uh, try and minimize us and discount us, even in this so-called moment of reckoning. Oh, we're, we, this is woke culture now. We want to listen to black people and listen to black men. That's still not universally true. So Mo's right. I agree. We've had we've had the same the same experiences. Wow. And so that's really a testament to your not your work ethic and um, and rising above it, because it, it is something where I guess the tokenism or having to feel that you have to ri um, rise above the fact that you're not just you're a host. You can't just be just a host. You have to be a black host. <laughs> and it's like, look, that, that kind of discounts. Well, I'm intelligent. I, I can research. I can. I can know the issues. I can interview uh, to get people to to talk about what you know what's going on. It, it doesn't take as if you have a brain and you can you know look. Georgetown gave us a great education, so they gave us the tools to to figure out what we need to do um, to to be uh, to do our jobs correctly. So, um, so uh, so since you brought up Roger Stone, let's go ahead and get that out of the way. <laughs> um, Two weeks ago, Roger uh, Stone uh, decided to call you a Negro on national, on your national show, and folks got wind of it and, and started talking about it. And uh, of course, it went viral, um, as we as we know. Um, but one of the things I, you know, and I, I looked at another show that you're on, Mona Mona Shake Show. Shout out to Mona for for doing her doing her thing. Um, and um, you didn't lose your cool. And you, there, there was, um, you know, and you, I, I applaud you for your composure because the way you just like, well, wait, what did you say? Uh, and it was like, not surprised, but like, wait, are you, are you being clear now? I'm going to give you an opportunity, clear on what right. you said. And of course he tried to deny it, but um, how, did, how, did you re how did you feel about the situation as a whole? Well, my mic, uh, my camera is trying to work against me. So let me get through this. I was taught very early on how to deal with that when I was called the N word, the real one as a kindergartner, first day of kindergarten. And I was called the real N word subsequent days after that and years after that. As an African-American man, I am intimately familiar with racialized disrespect, be it a racial pejorative or the inflammatory full version, full blown N word. That's something that black men usually have to deal with on a rather frequent basis. So the being uh, confronted with the prospect of being disrespected in my professional life was not all that unforeseen. 
maybe in that moment I could not predict it, but it wasn't unforeseen and it wasn't unusual in that regard. I had learned professionally how to be a broadcaster. I had a job to do. My job was to get answers out of Roger Stone. He was someone who was coming on my program just after being released from prison, uh, I should say just before he went to prison because of a commutation, most likely due to his proximity to the president and his friendship. My job was to make sure I got that question in and also find out whether there was any communication between him and the Trump administration. And let's look at this against a larger backdrop that he would have been returning as an advisor to the Trump campaign slash administration, an already indicted president for seeking help from a foreign country. And he was on his way to jail for ostensibly aiding a foreign entity and the Trump campaign. There were a lot of legitimate issues. I want to get to the bottom of why he was commuted as opposed to a pardon, because there are different legal implications. There was a reason to discuss that with him. And if I were to get sidetracked because I brought my feelings into it because he said, I don't know why I'm arguing with this Negro. Yeah, personally, I was angry, but professionally, I still had a job to do. And I did learn from some of my predecessors who I work with in radio. There was a radio host by the name of Jim Rome who works in sports broadcasting. He gave me my very first radio job. And there was an interview in which he was speaking to the late David Stern, NBA commissioner. And it was a contentious interview because he was asking the commissioner point blank, well, a lot of people believe that the NBA lottery is fixed. It's rigged. And David Stern shot back. He didn't answer the question. He said, well, have you stopped beating your wife? In other words, he took it very personally. It wasn't specifically about Jim and whether he was beating his wife. It was a rhetorical device. But the whole point was Jim did not respond in an unprofessional or personal manner. His job was to ask the question and then get David Stern on the record to acknowledge it against the backdrop at that point of the New Orleans Hornets and his role in rescinding that trade of Chris Paul to the Lakers. So I learned from that um, I would say explicitly and implicitly in the way of, even though I may have been disrespected, my job was to get Roger Stone on the record regarding the news. He was a newsmaker. He was newsworthy. That's why I kept my cool. And, and you know, Keith, that speaks yeah. to Mo's professionalism and experience. Um, because you have to know in that seat that that's a reflection on Roger Stone mm -hmm. and not Mo. When you are the interviewer and you ask someone a question and they go, they veer off in that direction, the, the, the average listener sees what's going on and it's pretty transparent. And so that said a lot more about him. Now, I've been in similar situations and you know all of my shows twice out of podcasting, we, we had um, we took call-ins, right? So what I would do, Mo, in a situation like that, I'd open it up. I'd let the audience take care of it for me. So right. well, let's take some calls. And then he would be eaten alive. So, no, I, I think, you know, it, it, that experience and that professional experience is what positioned Mo to respond to that in the proper way, as opposed to someone else who wouldn't have that experience and just would react maybe and, and go off about it. That becomes a distraction, but that was a reflection and will always be a reflection on on Roger Stone. 
but if yeah. let me jump in there, Mark, you also know that we have to consciously consider the prospect of feeding or not feeding into the stereotypes of being an angry black man right. when it would have been easy and justified. And I would be vindicated to be angry in an external way in that moment. We're also consciously aware of how it will be misused and used against us to further um, um, reduce and minimize our professionalism as broadcasters. That's right. That's right. Right. Yeah. And it's, we, we can't play that angry card. Uh, no matter what profession you're in, uh, you know, you have to be, we have to be composed and, and I, I and I thought it was a fantastic job uh, on your part. And um, so I'm glad we've got, we, and it's about to the stone is a fool yeah. too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, it's not like, <laughs> You know, it's not like the whole world doesn't know that. Right, right. Um, so yeah, so we we'll we'll get that out of we've gotten that out of the way, so that's great. So I just wanna we wanna just get back to because I know we're we've moved you know the Black Lives Matter movement march. You mentioned about you know we're everyone being woke now and you know the culture, even though people have kind of followed Black culture for a long time. But do you feel? Um, Right now, the country is going in the right direction. Me? Yeah. Um, going in the right direction. Uh, I think it has started down that path, but already we're seeing how short the attention span is of the American public and the mainstream media, which really controls everyone's attention span. Um, and that has always concerned me, even when people are saying this is the most conscious we've seen the nation in years, maybe so. But will it last? Is it lasting? I mean, we live in a country where people have lost patience with uh, quarantining, quarantining and wearing masks and whatnot to the point where, you know, the deaths in this country have transcended every other country in the world. So that says something about the American attention span. And if people, if people's attention span is too short to save their own lives, how is it going to be long enough to save black lives, which are still being killed by the police every day? Um, how is the attention span going to be long enough to demand justice for Breonna Taylor? whose killers are still roaming free. So, you know, it never stops. We've seen, we, we all have been around long enough to see these, these ebbs and flows. Um, but for those of us who've been working in circles of black liberation and black political resistance for years, this is nothing new, it ebbs and flows. Uh, but there are those of us who have a duty and a responsibility to continue it. But I will say this, I think that our movement for liberation has grown because there are some, if not the majority, it's never been in the majority, um, our movement. But I do know that there are some black and non-black who have been transformed by what has happened since this pandemic, being forced to, in, to stay in their homes and have no other choice but to witness the deaths in a loop on video of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd, at least. And I mean, I know some woke white folks or who thought they were woke 
woke or who I thought were woke. But after they saw that Ahmaud Arbery video, they called me and said, man, I didn't really realize that this stuff still happens. I said, oh yeah, happens every day. And so I think that we, we picked up even more allies and, you know, black folk who hit a folk, hit a four had not been as involved politically. I think they're there. But universally in the nation as a whole, um, I'm not too sure. I think that potential is there. So, yeah, Keith, we've started on the right road. We've just got to stay on course. Okay. What about you, Mo? What do you think? Well, I think of it like this. If there's a big timeline of African and African-American people here in this country and you were to put a magnifying glass on it and you were to drill down as far as this particular moment, you could say maybe over the past three months we're moving in the right direction. But as you pull out and look at the fullness of what has been happening in this country for the past three years at least, and I think some people were, I would say, tricked, my word, by the election of Barack Obama they, for some reason, believe that the elevation and exaltation of one African-American man specifically helped all of us more generally, and that wasn't necessarily the case. It did not mean that America respected us as a people more. It did not mean that it valued us more. And if anything, I think it, it set in motion a series of events where Trump was more easily embraced. I'm not blaming Barack Obama. I just think Barack Obama highlighted the true underpinnings of this country is what they felt about African-Americans. Now, to Mark's point, we're at a different place where our allies are a little bit more numerous. They're a little bit uh, more white, you could say. We can look at what's going on in Seattle, with what's going on in Portland, and that's something we've not seen before. But if anything, I would say, like Mark had said, okay, thank you for coming to the party. Thank you for realizing that this has been happening. And I think fundamentally the only thing which has changed is that now all of us have that camera that was in the hands of that photographer during the Rodney King beating. We all have that power now. And now we are showing America for what she is and who she is in the sense of the historical treatment of African-Americans. So I'm more dismayed and disenchanted because I thought that we could have made more progress or should have been making more progress. But in actuality, I believe that we haven't given the embrace of Trumpism because I believe that is a very sincere reflection of a large percentage of Americans who fundamentally do not respect black people. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And I, I do agree, especially with uh, when uh, President Obama was, uh, you know, was elected president. Not that we took our took um, our pedal off off the gas, but we we did get comfortable, and we thought that oh, we we might have been in a much better position than we really were. And behind the scenes, people were you know gearing up, you know, to um, to, to say to let us know that we <laughs> we did not we had not absolutely arrived. Um, so then the, so then that leads to uh, next part we're, we're going to talk about. Uh, Joe Biden, or President um, nominated Joe Biden on the Democratic side. Um, and so, of course, you know, anybody watched any of the debates for a while, he, at times he even just looked like he was not interested. And until, you know, I think the South Carolina, and then somehow he was 
became the front runner. So with that said, and I, and it says, and you guys of course know a lot better that we kind of bolstered the black community, bolstered up his, you know, his platform. So with that said, what what should we be asking for as the black community from uh, President Elect uh, Joe Biden? Should we be asking anything? Uh, Mark, what do you think? Well. You're right, if it had not been for the African-American electorate in South Carolina, um, he would not be where he is. If it had not been for the first black president, he would not be where he is. And so I think at a minimum, it's beyond what we ask for. We're far beyond that now. It's about what we expect and what we deserve. Um, so he got the first memo, um, it seems, and that is to select an African-American woman as his running mate. I have strong reason to believe, I think we all can conclude he will. Uh, it's just a question of which one. I'm gonna come back to that in a minute. Um, but if he is elected president, and, and, and I should say when, he should be, unless you know, Russia does get involved or, or Trump can get the election canceled, or, which is obviously what he intends to do, or, or invoke a civil war. And I think that's also something we'd like to do. Um, um, all of the things that we would demand in terms of an overhaul of policing in this country, all the things that we would demand that Reverend Barber has laid out in terms of Poor People's Campaign, you know, um, finishing Dr. King's unfinished work is what the Poor People's Campaign is. And, you know, a lot of us may be too bougie to admit it, but even those of us who call ourselves middle class or upper middle class these days really qualify as working poor. And I think COVID is revealing that to a lot of people. Um, uh, for the second time in history, the House took a vote on statehood a couple of weeks ago. If Democrats win the White House and the Senate, that needs to be passed January 20th. And also H.R. 40, which is a bill I work, I'm working currently just about every day on, and that would be uh, the reparations bill. Um, those are the things we should be expecting from Joe Biden. In terms of the vice presidency, I'm concerned because he's allowing old white men to influence his decision as to which black woman he should pick. They are trying to divide the black community by pitting one black woman against other black women. Uh, I think it is shameful. And I think too, um, it's going to hurt his campaign. Really it is because by attacking Kamala Harris the way they are as being too outgoing or too ambitious or too powerful. God forbid a woman is too powerful. That's a threat, that's an existential threat. Um, they've really hurt him because if Joe Biden now does not pick Kamala Harris, it will appear that he was forced not to do so by the white men in his campaign. Um, and it also minimizes the other qualified black women, because what are you saying about them? 
They're not really ambitious. They're not as, as sharp as Kamala is. So, you know, it's those types of missteps. It's kind of like what Bill Clinton said to John Lewis of funeral. Um, people need to stop getting in our family business. You know, we were just talking before it went on. If I, if we, you and I say to each other, Negro, please, that doesn't give Roger Stone permission to call him Negro. Come on. So, Bill Clinton, you know, does not have permission to try and explain or have commentary on the effect of Kwame Ture, Stokely Carmichael versus John Lewis. Shouldn't even talk about that. And by the same token, Chris Dodd and these other uh, European men in Joe Biden's campaign should not be speaking about or commenting on what black woman is more ambitious or too ambitious versus other black women who are much more quiet and will just take orders from Massa. That that doesn't help us. And, and it's troubling to see that his campaign has veered off course in that way. Mo, do you, do you agree with that? Yeah, I would like to actually add to it. Mark gave us a lot of good things to think about, but I would add to it this way. As far as what we should demand or expect from Joe Biden, President-elect Joe Biden, I don't know if it's one particular prescription, but there are some elements I think need to be included in the overall um, recommendations for this platform. There has to be a health care component. Barack Obama started it, but it needs to be further moved upon. I mean, I believe that we must have that public option. If you're trying to help the largesse of African-Americans, that needs to be part of it. There needs to be an educational component. We're going to have to first undo what uh, DeVos has done or tried to do in our educational system and make improvements there. And there has to be obviously an economic component. I'm not so sure that it's particularly or it needs to even be called reparations, but there are so many aspects which need to be in this, um, um, I would say, platform. Yes, there has to be a law enforcement component, but let's not forget our civics. There's only so much that can be done on the federal level. When we talk about Ahmad Arbery, that's a local policing issue. When we talk about a lot of these incidents, it has to do with local policing issues. And as the law is set up right now, the federal government can only come in usually when it's a, a civil rights violation or something along those lines. There are a lot of things which need to be done. With the issue of Joe Biden, I think that there's a problem with our process. If you are a Democratic voter, you see the primaries. Black folks didn't even really have a say until South Carolina. That was problematic. And when Kamala Harris, Senator Kamala Harris, announced her campaign, there were far too many black folks trying to tear her down because of her prosecutorial record, which is now coming back to haunt us. In other words, we've given the Biden campaign reasons not to select her, and it will be used against her, unfortunately. I think that we had a responsibility. Let's not forget, I'm a registered independent, so I'm not trying to say what the Democrats should do, but I am acknowledging that the Democrats had a full year to choose their preferred candidate. And for whatever reasons, ended up with Joe Biden. Honestly, I don't think you should have ever ended up with Joe Biden. There were too many other people who were better for America and better for black folks. So we wouldn't have to pin our hopes and dreams to the wagon or the star of Joe Biden. And I appreciate what he did as vice president, but I am not necessarily enthusiastic about him. Uh, yes, Trump is an existential threat to the black community and therefore he's going to get a lot of black folks votes just because 
And yes, we need to hold him accountable and demand certain platform um, issues and, and be added to the agenda. But I, I'm, I don't want to be too critical of black folks, but somehow we kind of helped get ourselves to this point where we had to look at Joe Biden because it came down to Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders. And I honestly don't believe either are the prescription for African-Americans at all. Yeah, and that's funny. Keith, Keith can, can I respond to, yeah. to that real quick? Do you yeah, mind? Go, go ahead. Well, I was going to say before you respond, uh, you know, especially what what people what he said on the Breakfast Club, where he was like, "Well, if you're if you're not if you're not black, um, uh, if you're not voting for me and you're black, we you got a problem. So you need to you need to look yourself in the mirror." So, but I just wanted to point that out. But go ahead, Mark. But again, that's an example of of white men being made to feel comfortable. Right. Uh, and I have to admit, to be honest with you, Joe Biden didn't get there by himself. You know, he didn't make, the, you know, there are black folk around some of these people, including Clinton, that make them empower them to speak that way. You know, they'd be better off talking to black folk like us <laughs> before they go out and say stuff like that in public. So don't talk that way. That's crazy. You know, but Mo is, is right. Kamala Harris opened her candidacy. 30,000 people at a rally. Before that, she was called the female version of Barack Obama. Now, the thing that we need to be clear about is that we as African-Americans are targeted and propagandized on social media more than anyone. And it began, we're talking about a lot of these Karens now, right? The original Karen was Laura Bazelon from California, who wrote that hit piece in the New York Times saying that Kamala Harris was not a progressive prosecutor. And then a whole army of online trolls that I won't call by name right now so they won't infiltrate you all's feeds, started this campaign appearing to be black saying that she was a sellout she was a cop and all not even black not even black they also said remember she was a bed wench yes she had had a relationship with willie brown, willie brown. and see mo and keith let me just tell you how I, how I operate if people are trying to take out someone like that that looks like us and it has become their urgent goal to do it that only inspires me to say well why is this person such a threat? Maybe she is who we really ought to be looking at. And we're seeing that again. We've got to stop him from picking her as vice president. I mean, that makes me say, well, maybe she, what is it that you all are so afraid of? And I'm going to tell you what it is. This might have gone over people's heads. In, at the end of 2019, Steve Bannon, one of Trump's other confidants like Roger Stone, announced that he believed Kamala Harris was the biggest threat to Trump. He said that. And then Ann Coulter and others who were associated with some of these other black folk on Twitter started this activism, Bed Wench, not a real African-American, uh, a cop, cop, cop Mala is what they started calling her. And, and it has not um, subsided. So I, I think we have to take a very, very careful look and what and what that's all about and and how that came to be and i think mo was right mo's not the first person i've heard say that we should not have ended up here 
Um, and, and to that point, last thing I'll say, one of the other criticisms is if she's the vice president, she'll be eyeing the presidency from day one. That seems, I remember the job description. 40, but, wait a minute, but literally, didn't 45 days ago, weren't people talking about, we need someone to step into the job in four years or less because of Joe's age. Now we want somebody who's not, I don't want boss, I don't want no Joe job. I don't want to be the president. We supposed to buck around like that? No, 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 something, something is wrong with this whole picture. But let me just say one other thing. We didn't lob these same types of criticisms, insults, or fake arguments against Tim Kaine. There was no discussion of that. And so let's, let's judge the apples against the apples. The headwinds against Senator Kamala Harris are, are unseen. By I, I've never seen anything like it on either side of the aisle. There's no downside to a Kamala Harris being the other half of the ticket. There is no downside to anyone who's actually reasonable, credible, and practical in a political sense. E even the original Karen, Laura Bazelon, has come out and reversed her position and said that she would feel comfortable if Kamala Harris was chosen uh, as VP. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's really very interesting. And we know there's no downside. After all, what happened, we remember what Barack Obama did when he met Kamala Harris. He was out there in California and he was at a big fundraiser. And, you know, he was so impressed by her. You know, he said, this is the best looking attorney general I've ever seen. And he had to, uh, Obama had never seen anything like that before. But he was so blown away, he said, I ain't never seen Attorney General like this. And he had to end up apologizing for it. That's where her stock was. And then all of a sudden overnight, she ain't black enough. She's too ambitious. And again, what, what we're seeing is, is white men attacking the most powerful and loyal force in the Democratic Party. And that's black women. Mm, yeah. So that's interesting. So I, it, it, from, it's clear from our discussion we that you feel that you guys feel that Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris, should be the candidate. But if, with that said, if she's not selected, who, who, who would be the second best choice that uh, Joe Biden may go with? Need to go with. Well, I always look at a VP candidate. Hopefully, will give something, add something that the presidential candidate does not have or offer, can deliver hopefully a constituency or a geographic region or a state or something. That's politically, historically how it's done. Um, Mark is right when you talk about the, the political base, the strength of the Democratic Party is black women. It's inarguable. It's inarguable. So with that in mind, it's going to need to be an African-American woman to make sure that you deliver that base, that level of enthusiasm on election day. Now, we can quibble about whether it's, uh, Susan Rice would be better than Val Demings. And as far as number two, ooh, um, I would have to say Susan Rice. I mean, yeah, she would rankle the right, but who gives a damn about the right? Because you're not trying to get those votes. You're trying to make sure that Democratic voters come out. And also it airs, gives an air of legitimacy as far as someone who understands not only how Washington works, but can be president on day one if something should happen to Joe Biden. I, with no disrespect to Val Demings, I don't know if she's ready at this point. I don't know if, if Mayor Lance Bottoms of Atlanta would be ready at this point. I don't know that, but I believe that Susan Rice 
uh, Ambassador Rice, Secretary Rice, would be ready if need be? Um, let me be clear. Um, I'm defending um, Kamala Harris from being disqualified. I like all of them. I know all of them. I think any one of them are qualified uh, to do it. I, I do think those who thought they were helping Biden, though, have undermined the process because now it, it's kind of like when um, um, uh, Serena Williams played Naomi Osaka. If they had let the match play out, uh, Naomi might have just won right out, but they cheated Serena, which overshadowed Naomi's talent. So when you disqualify and cheat out Kamala, you are undermining Susan or Val or Karen or Keisha because it looks like you kicked her to the curb to pick one of them. And that's what troubles me. And I don't know how you fix that with and, and make it fair to all of them without having Kamala come back in as being whole. Having said that, there's one other person. See, again, who were the white men who decided before the fact? There are a dozen other qualified black women out there. And I've talked to very prominent black women, in, including some of them who said this. And Margaret, who decided we would be the only candidates? Who makes that decision? Um, there's another one that it wasn't as prominent in the media that was disqualified, I think, also for being too strong. And that's Stacey Abrams. Right. To Mo's point, this is the man. He said, usually want a vice president to bring you something electorally, some numbers a state or what have you. The numbers that I saw at one time suggested that if Stacy were on the ticket, it would mobilize Georgia to the point where Georgia would turn blue in November, deliver two Democratic Senate seats and therefore the United States Senate. But for some reason, Stacy too, has been disqualified because of a, a, a not so outspoken, more of a of a silent campaign, um, because some white men decided we need some type of uh, 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 soft spoken or quiet black woman. But Val, Val ain't soft spoken. It didn't. Neither is Keisha, <laughs> neither is Aaron, and neither is Susan Rice. So it, it's they're looking for some type of. Of, of, of unicorn black woman, I don't know, which, but I think in, in, in the end of the day reveals they don't really want any black woman, yeah, um, those who are advising him. But my man better get himself together. Mark, I'm sorry, you made a great point, and I thought it was a political mistake for Joe Biden to even say that he was going to pick a woman. With all due respect to women, I think he, he locked himself, he painted himself into a corner, and then... I don't know if we ran with it in the black community or just expected going back to what we expect and demand of Joe Biden. We're now at a point where Joe Biden, he has to pick a black woman. Yeah. He really does have to pick a black woman. A and, and so it's created this situation. I would say he's created this situation now where we have to deal with this. And there are a lot of black folks who are going to be unhappy regardless of whom he actually chooses. And I think this was a not necessarily an unforced error because we understand the internal machinations of how this decision is being made and why. But we want to make sure if we do want Donald Trump out of office that we don't depress, not 
suppress the vote, but depress the enthusiasm of the black vote. Right. right. Yeah. We don't, we don't need another down year of people not coming out to the polls. But so then that leads to kind of my next question, which I think is very important. We need to, you know, can can Donald Trump get reelected? Hell yes. What, uh, me? Yeah, go ahead. Start with that. Well, I, I think it in a normal world. No, in a normal world. But this president's made it very clear that he will do anything to be reelected. Anything. He has a complicit DOJ. He's willing to enlist the help of China, Ukraine, Russia. He is openly musing about uh, delaying the election. Not that he could, but it speaks to his willingness to circumvent the, na uh, the Constitution at any opportunity. Let's take him at his word. He will do anything in order to remain in office and also avoid subsequent prosecution, if only on a state level. Let's be honest here. He has a motivation beyond staying in office to make sure by hook or crook that he stays in office. So, yes, he can win the difference. Before, he was just a private citizen and he might have been receiving some help from Russia. Now he has the full weight of the government. And I, to my count, some 24 governors and state secretaries of state who will be helping him specifically either limit polling places. Um, there might be some funny business with mail-in ballots if only because he wants there to be funny business with the ballots and somehow delegitimize this election. I don't put it past. The math is what it math is in the sense of he should not win. I am firmly of the belief that he still can win. Um, I would agree. Um, and I think he's transparently telegraphing what we should be prepared for. Um, he's not campaigning. He's not doing anything that's any semblance of a campaign. Um, you know, I think obviously he knows and he is expecting some help from somewhere, you know, Years ago, when I was running our black political party, the most part, I had a running mate who would never campaign, couldn't get him out the house. He wanted to stay home every day and um, smoke reefer and drink Corona. And that's what he did, reefer and Corona every day. So, man, you got to get out here and campaign. He was no Donald Trump. He didn't have anybody, any help coming, so he lost. We know Trump <laughs> has help coming and is coming from overseas. We once again, as a black community be targeted, will be targeted. So for example, if Biden picks Kamala, all the not a real African-American, bed, wench, cop, all that's gonna come back and it'll be flooding our social media feeds. Be ready, folks. And there's also this argument saying to black people, um, don't vote for the top of the ticket. There are those who saying, if uh, Joe Biden doesn't give us our individual reparations checks by November, don't vote. And that's not coming from the authentic reparations movement. But all those things are already happening to confuse people. So I think he's counting on some help. Now, he's also counting on his ability to cancel the election. We know what the Supreme Court did in 2000. They are never to be trusted. I don't care what two or three good decisions they make. Because this past term, every good decision there was also a bad one so people shouldn't get caught up uh in that so i think we have to be prepared uh for all of that 
Now, as far as him not leaving, you know, I've had some military folk on my show. The Constitution says, if the Supreme Court doesn't throw out the Constitution, who knows? January 20th at noon, your rusty dusty got to go. When the president incumbent gets in the car with president-elect, that moving van pulls up and your stuff is carried out of there right away. So I don't see, I think he's hoping there's going to be a mutiny on the part of the Secret Service and the military. I don't see that. This is not the 1800. White folks working in the military and the Secret Service, y'all, um, have jobs and families and mortgages and tuitions to pay. And I don't think anybody wants to mess that up <laughs> for for Donald Trump. So he's going to appeal to Boogaloo, the Boogaloo movement, and these other white supremacists. They're going to try to, you know, have some Bundy Ranch national civil war standoff, I'm sure. But I, I have reason to think the authorities will ultimately prevail. But then here's the other horrifying question. Will he just go away into the night or will he try to run again in 2024? And he's crazy enough to do it, I think. Well, I don't know if he'll run. If he were to lose, I believe the Republican Party will try to take back their party as best they can for the survival. Because if Donald Trump were to lose, then most likely they lose the Senate as well. There's a good chance of that. And if they lose the Senate and they also have lost the House, the prospect of Donald Trump coming back in 2024 is probably not all that appealing or enticing. But that said, the Trump element will remain long past this election and will have to be dealt with in a, in a variety of ways. The voter suppression techniques, which will be employed this time around, will exist beyond that election. Um, the, the, the foreign influence and the social media campaigns will exist beyond this election. So, yes, maybe Trump may not be in the Oval Office, but the remnants will remain. And we will have to deal with those probably for a generation. Right, right. I, I hear that. So what, one of the things both of you touched upon kind of as we, as we close out, um, that we, we need to get ready and we need to be prepared for uh, November 3rd. So what are the things in our communities, what is it that we need to do to make sure we are prepared? Um, we, we still have COVID going on. And, um, you know, of course, that's going to really affect uh voting in a lot of different places so what are the some of the things that we need to do to make sure our votes uh get counted come november 3rd well you can go you can you can close this out okay well i i think we just need to be good students and good stewards of this uh republic in which we've been given. It's not just the top of the ticket. It's about our local judges. It's about our local ordinances. It's about the pro ballot propositions and funding measures, which are available for all of us in our various municipalities and states, which will have a more direct impact on our lives in a day-to-day -day sense, as opposed to whether it's Joe Biden or Donald Trump. It feels like sometimes that Donald Trump has a disproportionate effect on our lives because we keep hearing from his ass every single day. He's always trying to do something which emotionally touches us in certain ways. But let's not forget, your mayor has a far more direct impact on you. There are things right in your town, the judges that you will be electing in your 
community. Those are the people which will impact you if that you may end up in front of. So I think our responsibility is to know the fullness of the ballot, all those people who are down ballot, all those down ballot power propositions. And then if you're going to vote and you're voting absentee like me, maybe send it in a few days early because it's not going to change. That's something that we can control and you can drop it off in person. You don't need to necessarily mail it in. You could take it to a polling center if this happens to be the day of. Those are the things that we can control, but that's the function of being a knowledgeable voter. Okay, Mark. Um, I would just add to that. Um, that's absolutely true. We should be prepared to knock down any and all discussion on social media that discourages us from voting. That means we need to engage one another. Um, black men, this is black men speak. The plan is to specifically target black men. Right. Kanye is out here to cause that confusion. And Donald Trump won by um, with 80,000 votes spread across three states. That's not a whole lot of votes. So you can trick a few of us. Man, I'm not going to vote. That's a problem. Black Lives Matter. Um, As Mo said, police are governed locally. All right. When it comes to polls staying open and polls being closed and fewer polling places in black communities, that is also governed at the local level. So up and down the ballot, we have to vote and elect people that will change police departments, mayors, city council members, county commissioners, um, and who also make appointments to election boards and secretaries of state because polling places and police are local matters. We're not going to solve those matters by just tweeting about them. We have to do the unsexy work and the activism in these local communities. So. Um, Mo is right. Uh, we've got to be vigilant. Um, John Lewis bequeathed to us a duty and a responsibility. And he made it very, very clear. Um, you know, his passing, his transition to the ancestry itself at this moment is almost providential in terms of motivating us to do uh, what we must do. We have got to get this man out of office. He's bad for us as black folk, for, for, for us, for black people. He's bad for white people. He's bad for everyone. And so our priority November November 3rd has to be marching to the polls, every soul to the polls. And black men, especially, we've got to show up and be clear. We can disagree on stuff, but let's work out those disagreements January 20th. Right now, we have to be unified against Donald Trump and unified for those people who will bring about changes in law enforcement in our local communities. Yeah, this is Black Men Speak, so we, we do need to be out. We need to be leaders in on this. We need to ask questions, especially of our local leaders. What do they stand for? That's what social media is about. Let us use that platform to get our uh, questions answered so we can go out and make some changes, that, changes that we need to make uh, come November 3rd. Mo, Mark, uh, I want to thank you guys for being on the show tonight. Uh, we may have to come back. Definitely have to have you back for uh, the after election show because I know those changes. I'm going to speak it into existence. Those changes that we are needing and asking for are going to be made. So uh-uh. for being we on got tonight. to come back for the World Series first. That's going to be before the election. That's right. We got to talk Dodgers Yankees. Well, the Dodgers oh, will be that's, there. <laughs> that's a cool. Well, the Yankees will be there too. Because you know we we going uh, Mookie. We going to have to hit Mookie. That's all I know. We're going to hit Mookie and. And uh, what's it, Joe Kelly, too. <laughs> That's right, Joe Kelly. 
Um, but we do right. thank him for what he did to, to the Astros. So love it, love it. <laughs> no, that was good with me. This, I no problem with that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, thank you guys, and uh, and uh, God bless, and we'll see you soon. God bless. Thank you, brothers. Thank you.